You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Welcome to episode 9 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Today's episode will cover the feminist internet and features two regular panelists, one you're familiar with and one you'll be meeting for the first time. Ladies, uh, can you introduce yourselves, please? Marie, you go first. Hello, my name is Marie Haas. I'm a PhD candidate in Renaissance Literature at Florida State University. And uh, I'm qualified for discussing today's topic only by ignorance, since I come to it with a mind fairly untainted by involvement in online feminism. So it's it's a topic that I had a lot to learn about, and that was um, great doing the reading for this. So it was very useful for me. Thanks, Marie. Uh, Leah, how about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Leah. Um, I am a going for my master's in Renaissance history with a minor in early modern European history at Loyola University. I'm starting this fall. Um, I'm also new to the online feminism scene. So this was wonderful to uh, read and just find out more about it. And I actually joined Twitter as a result of doing this research. So that was fun. Thanks, Leah. Uh, And I, as you probably know if you're listening to this show, am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, I am pursuing, uh, actually finishing pursuing, knock on wood, a PhD in Renaissance Drama and Gender Studies from Florida State University. Uh, I plan, barring major disasters, to graduate in December, so I'll keep you all um, updated on that. Uh, I currently live with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast in Waconia, Minnesota, uh, though we're moving in two weeks, uh, so that means my apartment looks like a horrible bomb went off. So, today we're discussing an article from The Nation that's entitled, Feminism's Toxic Twitter Wars, and it first appeared uh, January 29th of this year, and when it did, there were quite a few vehement responses. The catalyst for the article and the online argument that ensued after the article was a panel discussion of 21 feminist bloggers and online activists at Barnard College in New York City. Courtney Martin and Vanessa Valenti organized the panel. Uh, Both Valenti and Martin uh, made their mark on the feminist internet as contributors and editors at feministing.com. And feministing uh, is considered by many people sort of the first big young feminist blog, uh, sort of started um, the young feminist internet. 
Martin and Valenti compiled information from this panel into what they called the hashtag FemFuture report. This report argues for the need for funding for online feminist activism, and one of the central reasons to fund online feminism, uh, the report says, is so the voices of previously marginalized women, like queer women, women of color, or trans women, um, will be heard more, and that these women who are underrepresented will be given more support. So this report raised a lot of ire in the online feminist community because many people thought that uh, that these white women um, were patronizing, that they were exclusionary, that they were speaking up on behalf of women of color. And this anger kind of culminates in writer and activist Mickey Kindle creating the Twitter hashtag Solidarity is for white women. Uh, for their part, Martin and Valenti feel like people are angrier than they should be about this, and that they're shutting down a conversation um, that Martin and Valenti are just trying to open up. So that's a pretty quick and dirty summary of the article. Leah, can you give us a little bit more background? Tell us more about the hashtag FemFuture report. Sure. Um, the FemFuture report, uh, really, after reading it, is more like an outline or an introduction to exactly what online feminism is and how it could be enhanced to really help feminism better uh, reach different audiences and um, connect women around the world. Uh, whether it's the marginalized feminists um who feel that they have been cut out uh, or um, feminists who are actually working through different organizations um, for a very specific cause. Uh, they're not really trying to shut down different factions or to shove all feminists into one category, but they were really trying to show how um, things could be connected better and more streamlined to be more effective. So uh, they really have five conditions of collective success, um, a common agenda, shared measurement system, usually reinforcing activities, continuous communication and a backbone support organization. So it's connecting the single bloggers or websites or articles that are just put out there that create commotion online, create awareness for different issues and connecting them to those organizations and the strong supports um, that are out there and available, but have not uh, made that connection before. Sounds great. Thanks. Uh, that's some good, thorough background. As I said before, uh, when this report was released, um, it got a lot of really bold, um, kind of angry responses. Marie, tell us about 
some of the responses, uh, not only to the report itself, but to uh, the Nation article. Well, Goldberg's Nation article didn't occur in a vacuum, and there were a lot of uh, pieces with a similar slant coming out around the same time, not necessarily focused on the FIM Futures report and the situation surrounding the backlash to that, um, but also focused on the perception of toxicity in uh, either feminism online in general or particular, <coughs> particularly in Twitter, excuse me. Um, some of these similar pieces, uh, two of these similar pieces would be Megan Murphy's in FeministCurrent.com and Helen Lewis's The Uses and Abuses of Intersectionality in NewsStatement.com in February of this year. Murphy's piece, The Trouble with Twitter Feminism, was published in December of 2013, uh, so slightly before the Nation article, and takes a similar tack to Goldberg's. In it, Murphy, who's the founder and editor of Feminist Current, argues that feminists, particularly those who are active on Twitter, um, which she, more than Goldberg, distinguishes from those who are active feminists outside of Twitter, are too apt to make baseless accusations of each other, to tear each other down, and to become bogged down in petty infighting. Murphy's closing statement makes clear what Goldberg's article as a whole implies, that she does not see that this is advancing feminist goals. Murphy says, Ripping women to shreds and piling up the virtual bodies in order to reach the top of the heap may bring you more followers, but it won't bring us any closer to liberation. So that was one sort of strong expression of something similar to what we see in Goldberg's article. While Murphy does not deal explicitly with the seeming divide between women of color feminists and uh, scare quotes mainstream feminists, as Goldberg does, this divide is understandably the focus of many, if not most, of the responses to Goldberg's article and particularly her discussion of the Fim Future situation. Some responses argued that white feminists or otherwise privileged feminists should listen to those who they have hurt or oppressed, even if it's done unconsciously, rather than reacting negatively to this kind of justified anger. Others have argued that the implied rejection of dissenting marginalized voices in Goldberg's article was an attempt to maintain the power of those in positions of privilege. Sui Park, who's the originator of the popular Not Your Asian Sidekick hashtag on Twitter, um, and who held heated Twitter exchanges with Megan Murphy in the wake of Goldberg's piece, helped to popularize the concept of internet gentrification, which is part of this, uh, as part of this reaction. In an article titled In Defense of Twitter Feminism, written with David J. Leonard on modelviewculture.com, Park and Leonard argue against Goldberg and argue that the presentation of Twitter feminism as toxic by, <coughs> by white feminists like Goldberg is evidence of an attempt to cleanse the internet of the pollution of dangerous elements who have found a voice online that is particularly women of color. Park and Leonard suggest that this perception of Twitter feminism as toxic and the implied efforts to lessen or remove that toxicity is bound up in an effort to gentrify the internet, one that parallels the gentrification of suburbs. 
uh, and with similar social and racial tensions at play. Park and Leonard see Goldberg's article as an attempt at silencing black feminists, particularly Mickey Kendall, the originator of the Sol Solidarity is for White Women hashtag, who is presented negatively by Goldberg. However, there were also some responses that, while definitely rejecting Goldberg's framing of the issues, point to something other than the privilege gap and the racial issues that are at play in the situation. Catherine Cross, a Puerto Rican trans woman who's cited in Goldberg's article, points out that somewhat ironically, the massive responses calling for the privilege to listen to the voices of the marginalized have largely maintained the focus on the privileged and erased the voices of the marginalized from Goldberg's article, as many such responses have rejected wholesale the concerns raised by Cross and some of the other women of color that Goldberg quotes. In her response to the explosion following Goldberg's article, uh, Cross's entry titled The Chapel Perilous on the Quiet Narratives in the Shadows on her blog, quinnae.com, Cross notes that hostility and harassment between feminists is not only aimed at the privileged. Of the responses to Goldberg, Cross writes, by allowing ourselves to think of the term toxicity only as a dog whistle against women of color, we neglect the extensive recent history of feminist insurgency against online harassment, which often critiqued social media, but never used it as a coded synonym for women of color's voices or criticisms. Cross continues, the best way to overcome the mistakes of the nation article is not to declare all discussion of online toxicity verboten, but to bring the discussion back to the complicated place we've been taking it for years, both in terms of describing internal and external dynamics. So I think that with the variety of responses to the piece and to this, the, uh, the backlash against the Fem Future Report as well, the issues that are raised point to feminism as certainly a very complicated place. And um, I think that's overall a good thing. Yeah, I would, um, I would definitely agree with that. I really like um, what you were saying the last article said about um, online harassment and about how sort of toxicity on the internet has a lot of different faces and that we shouldn't just say like, you can't say things I don't like. So, interesting. So before we uh, jump right into the reading itself, I thought it would be useful if we talked a little bit about our personal experiences. So what are your experiences with the feminist internet? What kinds of sites do you visit um, often or not often? Um, how do you use them and why? That kind of thing. Um, Marie, start us off. Well, to be honest, I haven't had a whole lot of experience with online feminism, and especially not Twitter feminism, since I don't even have a Twitter account. I've sort of been meaning to get one, but I don't. I only have read about Twitter. Um, so in doing the reading for this episode, it, uh, it sort of brought home to me how little I know about the current feminist scene, especially on the internet, and how much I have to learn, which um, is always good to uh, note about yourself. And 
I guess as far as my experience of feminism online would go, um, I've observed a tendency toward interest in feminism and social justice on Tumblr, which is something I discussed in episode 3.1 of this podcast. Um, but I don't really uh, follow many feminist blogs, though I read some when, you know, they're popular posts on Facebook and that sort of thing. Um, but there is one that I've read in its entirety, and that's Diana Anderson's blog, Faith and Feminism. And she's a former classmate and friend. And uh, her blog inspired me to learn more about Christian feminism and uh, feminism in general and has really been a big influence on my thoughts. So you should all check out her blog at dianaeanderson.net. But that's pretty much been my experience. What about you, Leah? Well, I'm still relatively new to the entire scene of feminism. I've really only identified myself as a feminist for about three years, so I'm still figuring out um, quite a few things. But uh, a few of the blogs and websites that I've been looking at recently were actually mentioned in the article, like Feministing and Jezebel. Um, there were I also visit uh, Feminism 101 and Women in Media and News, but I visit these sites sporadically, uh, not only because I feel new to the feminist scene, but there's, there is a feeling of anger and an attacking tone to many of the articles that I've read that doesn't really have um, an outlet or a, a solution to that anger or, um, and really there's only so much that I can handle of that at a time, but, uh, I do still try to keep somewhat aware of what's going on, um, with women around the world. Thanks, Leah. Um, yeah, I, um, I'm also a visitor at most of the sites that you named um, and some others. I've been involved um, with the feminist presence online pretty much since I started my master's, um, which would have been about eight years ago now. Um, so I guess I'm, uh, I'm old hat at this feminist internet stuff compared to the two of you. Um, feministing was my gateway to the feminist internet, as it was, I think, to many people. Um, when I started reading Feministing several years ago, the executive editor was um, Jessica Valenti, who um, Vanessa Valenti, who is her sister, is mentioned um, in the article. And Jessica Valenti has gone on to write um, several books that are really useful if you have someone um, that you'd like to introduce to feminist concepts but who's sort of scared of them or who has only heard the kind of angry man-hating stereotype. Um, one that I would recommend that I often um, give to my students who are interested is called He's a Stud, She's a Slut, and 49 Other Double Standards Every Woman Should Know, uh, which is a sort of intro feminism kind of coffee table book. Each page has a different double standard and explains it in a really funny, uh, pretty approachable way, uh, which is characteristic not only of Valenti's style, but of the style that feministing still maintains. 
um, really light, often pop culture centered. Um, Volenti swears quite a bit in her books, so if you're not into that, um, maybe avoid those. In addition to feministing, I also um, read Jezebel, and I do check it once a day, though I've got to say I'm really starting to have a kind of love-hate relationship with Jezebel because um, because of the kinds of things Leah was mentioning, really, um, because it, it just sort of seems really, really arch in a way that is bordering on non-productive. Um, and, and there's a lot of, of criticizing of other feminist sort of ways of being or, or ways of speaking that I sometimes just have to take a break from. Uh, you mentioned femi- Feminism 101, which is also excellent, and which I think largely um, avoids that negativity of tone, maybe not entirely, but certainly more than Feministing or Jezebel. Um, they're really good at kind of bare-bones definition kind of stuff, too, so that's a good place, um, besides the Valenti books, to send people who are just kind of dipping a toe into the movement. And the other uh, sort of old standard um, feminist website that I started out on is pandagon.com, which started out as a place um, really focused on the intersections of race and gender, um, though... Uh, that that racial focus isn't as integrated all the time as it was at the beginning. So we will link to all of these uh, in our show notes. And the next thing that I wanted to ask as sort of an extension of the what's your experience question is, um, in the article, Goldberg says that there's this change in tone. Um, We've kind of alluded to it a little bit. Um... So she cites Emily Nussbaum from two years ago. Nussbaum says that freed from the boundaries of print, writers could blur the lines between formal and casual writing, between a call to arms, a confession, and a stand-up routine, and this new looseness of form in turn emboldened readers to join in to take risks in the safety of the shared spotlight. So when the feminist internet, when the feminist blogosphere first starts, it's this sort of no boundaries place of freedom and consciousness raising. Uh, but eventually positions and language start to get codified and policeable and freedom, uh, Goldberg tells us, turns to fear. And then she cites um, Catherine Cross, who Marie mentioned. Cross says... Uh, Sometimes she hesitates to publish articles or blog posts out of fear of inadvertently stepping on an ideological landmine and bringing down the wrath of online enforcers. I fear being cast suddenly as one of the bad guys for being insufficiently radical, too nuanced, or too forgiving, or for simply writing something whose offensive dimensions would be unknown to me at the time of publication. So Goldberg is positing that there's this tonal shift in the feminist internet, that it starts off as a place of freedom and ends up a place of kind of fear and policing. We've alluded to this a little bit, but uh, can you guys talk some more about whether or not you agree that this shift exists? And if you do agree, um, how have you seen it? What do you think about it? Leah, you first. Well, first I would probably make the argument that this isn't just for feminism online. This is something that is growing predominantly all over the internet. You can't 
write anything with a vague intention without somebody jumping on it and uh, making more of it than what is intended, perhaps. Um, intentions really don't matter anymore. Um, I did mention that I joined Twitter as a result of reading this article because I was curious to see what was going on. Um, and I started following a few different feminists on Twitter and different looking up different hashtags such as yes, all women, um, which resulted of the recent uh, shooting in California. And it is incredible to see how women and men um, can't just say something. They can't put their own thoughts out there, even though that is the purpose of Twitter to an extent, <laughs> um, without someone commenting, uh, whether it is in vague support or full out attacking them and wars break out all over the place. So I would agree that this is happening on the internet, uh, to feminists and really to anyone on the internet. Do you think, um, and I'm like Marie, I'm not on Twitter. Um, I, I've avoided it basically for no other reason than I feel like there are enough electronic things sucking up my time. Um, but do you think that this tone is in some way a function of the format of Twitter? I, I feel like, while I totally agree with you that um, everything you said about you know people kind of jumping um, on whatever people say online, do you think that that happening on Twitter could maybe be a function of the format of Twitter itself? Um, and you can only do so much, so much nuance in 140 characters, right? That is true. Um, although I would still say that there would be ways to question someone's argument without being so attacking. And there are still private messages. Um, I, I, I wouldn't just limit it to Twitter um, because you see that also in the comments sections of blogs. It's the oh, same yes. thing. It's just in the shorter um, tweets. And because you have fewer characters, you get a lot more nastiness in concentrated doses. Interesting. Uh, please, listeners who know more about Twitter than we do, please weigh in here. Um, tell us where we're wrong, why we're wrong, um, what we need to know, who we should follow on Twitter if I decide to get an account. So please weigh in here. Marie, what about you? Do you agree with this tonal shift? Well, I think I have seen like a little bit of this kind of tonal shift on Tumblr, where you see some posts now about things like, remember, before Tumblr was like this, and then you have this list of sometimes pretty ridiculous examples of calling out social injustice in ways that do not make sense in the context of the, of the posts. Um, so you have that sort of hyperactive awareness a little bit there, I guess. But in response particularly to Goldberg's article, <clears throat> I don't really think that internet feminism or 
actually intersectional feminism, which is a, a little bit what she's actually talking about, I think, is toxic at all. So for one thing, I don't think that the existence of differing voices and opinions in online feminism is bad or counterproductive because it's dividing feminism or something like that. And in the introduction to the Fem Future Report, Courtney Martin doesn't think so either. She quotes Florence Kennedy as saying, Unity in a movement situation is overrated. If you were the establishment, which would you rather see coming in the door, 500 mice or one lion? So I think online we're seeing a pretty healthy mouse population. And I also think that the call-out culture of online feminism is largely the result of increased awareness, which is also a good thing. So yes, it would be frustrating to be told that women of color should be included in panels like this when in the Fem Future meeting there were women of color included. But um, what is good is that there's this widespread awareness uh, that, yes, women of color should be included, and this is a thing that can be achieved, and that all too often women of color continue to be excluded. So that's just an example from uh, Goldberg's article of the kind of comment that can be taken as sort of frustrating or annoying, um, but that is actually coming out of this uh, widespread awareness, even though it might be coming out of ignorance as well. <laughs> um, and it's also true that an atmosphere in which this awareness is so frequently expressed can make some question whether or how to speak on certain issues. So if there's someone like me who's a white feminist and I recognize my privilege, how do I speak about a group uh, with less privilege or do I speak at all? There's a kind of soft double bind going on that, it's necessary to be intersectional, but it's also necessary not to cookie quest and certainly not to usurp or erase the voices of the people actually most affected by whatever issue is under discussion. But I think that this is also rooted in a positive awareness and it can't really at all be compared with the silencing of marginalized voices by the privileged as a comparison that some have made. So there's a huge difference between wondering how to speak because you don't want to contribute to hurt and damage and being silenced by the hurt and damage inflicted on you by others. I also uh, think, um, or I guess that with this being my mindset and coming to the article with that sort of uh, in place in my mind, my first impulse in reading Goldberg's article was to dismiss it as an expression of, but not all white feminists. And that's especially true when I was looking back at it after seeing all the various responses following the Elliot Rogers shooting, which is something Leah already mentioned. So with the, like, yes, all women, and you have these not all men responses, you know. So I think that that's a little bit what's going on in, in Goldberg's article. But Cross's blog entries, which I mentioned before, um, did make me... <laughs> question rejecting the entire issue. I think certainly there, there's some discussion to be had here, and I really don't have a conclusion <laughs> of uh, what we should do in these online conversations. But certainly in the discussions that we have about them, I think we should distinguish between criticisms given in bad faith and in good faith, as well as between tearing down a person's character and pointing out an erasure or omission and representation um, 
and Goldberg doesn't always seem to be making these distinctions. Also, uh, something that Cross points out in her response to Goldberg, or response to the backlash to the article, <coughs> excuse me, we should consider how bad faith character attacks might affect the voices of the marginalized as well as of the privileged. And one thing also that struck me that Cross brought up is the question of how our willingness to ostracize a fellow feminist for her ignorance of terminology, especially, uh, might have become a kind of elitism. An example, the example she gives is asking how readers might respond if Cross's mother, who never went to high school, were to say transgendered instead of trans person in an online conversation. What kind of responses could she expect to that and why and what should we do about this, the kind of atmosphere we've, we've created online? Thanks, Marie. Um, really great stuff there. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about language and exclusion in a minute, um, but first, just a, a couple of responses to some things that you um, that you guys have said. First, um, I I don't want to speak for the panel because we have or the rest of the podcast either because we haven't discussed this yet. Um, but I'm pretty sure you listeners at some point in our fall semester are going to see. Um, a show on the UCSB shootings and uh, the sort of resulting online explosion, uh, the not all men hashtag, the yes all women hashtag, these kinds of things. Um, again, we haven't talked about this yet, so sorry panelists if I'm overstepping my bounds, but pretty sure you're going to hear us talk about this more later. Um, and also, I really love um, the connection you made, Marie, between call-out culture, um, which I'll admit does bug me, and, and raising awareness. Call-out culture would not exist if people weren't aware of intersections and how they affect us. Um, and I, I hadn't really um, put two and two together that way entirely myself. So that's a really awesome point. Thanks. So um, now that we've talked a little bit about our personal experiences, we're going to dig deeper into some of the broader cultural issues raised by the article. And first, um, Leah is going to talk about racism online and racism within activism. Yes. <laughs> well, as a white feminist, this is, a, of course, a touchy subject um, because it is almost impossible to claim to be a white feminist without admitting that you are racist in some way. I say almost because there is probably someone out there who is not racist unintentionally, but it is so uh, easy for white feminists to be racist with their comments and with, with um, how they present, how we present our uh, beliefs that um, it it's very disheartening. Um, I did a lot of reading on the subject uh, after reading this article, including um, Five Ways White Feminists Can Address Our Own Racism by Sarah Melstein, which was mentioned in the Nation article. Uh, there's also Feminism Can't Be Just for White Women by Jamie Golden, uh, I did read Mickey Kendall's 
after hashtag solidarity is for white women. So you want to be an ally now what? And um, a WordPress post called an open letter to the white feminist community. And all of these articles, two written by white feminists and two written by women of color, uh, really point to the fact that there is not really a way for white feminists to completely separate themselves from their white privilege. And if we're, if white feminists are not aware of that, then they will be stepping on different toes and they will be impacting different um, activi- uh, activities in feminism, uh, perhaps without realizing it. Um, there is an implicit racial bias and a double standard for women of different races. Um, and that overt racism is all baked into the mainstream white feminism. Um, the entire solidarity is for white women hashtag uh, basically is just saying, don't try to combine everything into one group. Sometimes factions are good because then everyone is represented, which is obviously a wonderful um, thing to stand for. And it's very true. Um, but white feminists who are stepping up and automatically saying, oh, I'm not racist, look at what I am doing for these wonderful women of color, are automatically putting themselves forward and by trying to cover up racism, showing that they might be racist. Uh, There are some steps that a lot of authors um, and writers suggest that we take, including listen to what the women of color in Feminism are saying, educate yourself about what they are saying and what the issues are. Uh, Check yourself for your racism. Find out where your uh, double standards for women of color and white feminists stand. Um, And really be careful about your intentions um, because they can be good, but in the end, especially online, uh, intentions are meaningless when when you are in this culture where people will call out and criticize and tear you down. Um, uh, there was one very good quote that I have from Milstein's article, uh, which says that women of color don't need us to speak for them. And there are times when standing quietly in solidarity is important, but very often speaking up is important, not only because it may influence others, but also because it will likely influence you. So after doing all that listening and uh, learning and really self-examination, the key is to know when to step forward, when to recognize uh that there is racism and maybe call that out as racism. Um, but without uh, making it seem that you are not racist because it is practically impossible not to be racist. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I've been thinking a lot about this issue too, not just in context of this article, but in context of this podcast as a whole. Um, all of our regular panelists are um, or identify primarily um, as as white feminists. And I, I, I would like um, if we were a little bit more diverse, but I, I don't want to tokenize. I don't want to put out some kind of, you know, call for black Christian feminists or call for queer Christian feminists or whatever, because um, that's not, in my mind, the right way to go about it. I, I feel like um, that, that would be a, a disservice more than a, a service to diversifying. So, yeah, this is something that's been... Um, been on my mind a lot, and I really like what you said about um, the the way I've heard that kind of movement phrased. Um, I, I heard a male feminist ally um, speak once at an event I was at, and he said um, the first thing he had to learn as an ally was how to step up by stepping back, um, how to sort of serve the movement by listening first. Um, so I think that's a really great point and one that um, that I, you know, need to keep teaching myself to. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more about language and how we speak about ourselves when we talk about feminism um, and how we talk about feminist discourse. I'm using the word discourse primarily in the Foucauldian sense. Um, for those of you that don't know, I'm um, talking about the French um, philosopher and theorist Michel Foucault. Um, and he talks about discourse uh, in two main texts, in 1972's Archaeology of Knowledge and later in a series of interviews collected from 72 to 77 um, entitled Power, Knowledge, uh, and, and there's the, the deconstructionist uh, slash between power and knowledge there. So when Foucault talks about discourse, he's talking about language, um, but not just any language, language that's embedded in a particular power structure. This language is usually specialized within a particular field. Um, Foucault, in his work, talks a lot about the language of psychiatry and medicine. Um, and usually this language works to denote those within the field and separate those people within from other people without... Uh, based on relative comprehension of this specialized language. So, us people who know how to use good feminist language are different from you people who don't know how to use good feminist language correctly. This is why I think discourse is relevant to our discussion today, um, because of the way neologism combines with the use of Twitter hashtags to include and to exclude. Um, the article doesn't really talk about feminist discourse directly, but um, it does sort of imply the powerful presence of feminist discourse through the, um, the graphic that's present in the header of all the pages of the article. Um, it's this colorful, um, or partly colorful, um, graphic. There are uh, outlines of various women, there are four of them shaded in black, and over the women's faces there are one, two, three, six, seven um, speech bubbles, each one a different color with a different hashtag in them. Hashtags like unfollow, transphobia, victim blaming, tone policing, intersectionality, slut shaming, and racist. So, um, 
I would argue that these hashtags do work as a kind of Foucauldian discourse, that they do um, include, but that they also exclude, and that there's a kind of um, online policing that wants people to sort of use all of these terms in the same way, and that can be um, detrimental to conversations. I want to talk um, a little bit specifically about um, the terms inclusion and intersectionality, which are are and have been um, really big buzzwords in the feminist community at large, and especially in the online feminist community the past few years. Uh, the article does mention the coinage of the term intersectionality, which is by um, Kimberly Crenshaw, who's primarily a legal scholar, and who um, she defines the term, coins the term, and defines it in 1989 um, in an article where she talks about um, sort of the impossibility for black women um, of separating legal, uh, legalized or um, sort of codified uh, racism with legalized or codified sexism. That if you're a black woman, um, you can't just be black or just be a woman. You're always already a black woman at the same time. So that's how intersectionality um, comes to be. And I feel like sometimes that term is confused or conflated in a, a kind of interesting way um, with the term inclusion or the notion of inclusionary um, feminism. I feel like there are some voices online, I'm definitely not going to say all, of course, um, but there are some voices online who take inclusion to mean every possible point of view must be represented at once. Um, and I, I don't feel like that is a realistic expectation. I mean, I, I certainly feel like we should be thinking from multiple perspectives, um, but I, I don't feel like it's a productive conversation to say, um, you know, what about queer, disabled feminists of color all the time? Please, listeners, do not say that I'm, you know, speaking against intersectionality. I think we should have intersectional feminism. I just don't feel like every intersectional perspective should be expected to be represented all the time at once, because I don't feel like that's possible. We don't all have the same intersectional perspectives. Um, you know, there's also, just practically, there is no possible way to write an article that is on topic that represents all perspectives that exist. So I feel like um, instead of thinking about inclusion the way it seems to me the majority of the feminist internet thinks about inclusion, we should instead be thinking about intersectionality the way Crenshaw defines it, in that we all have these sort of multiplicitous identities that we can't separate that create us as complex people and we should respect other people's complex intersectional identities. Um, there are also, I think, some terms, some neologisms um, that work um, outside of feminism, that work to exclude um, people who are maybe not in the movement and want to be or people who are otherwise um, outside of our codified communities. And the biggest um, 
term in that vein is not represented on this graphic, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, and that is the term mansplaining. Um, have you two ladies heard this term before? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, all right. So you're familiar with this term. Um, just in case our listeners aren't, I'm going to read the Urban Dictionary definition, um, which is not academic, but I figure is uh, the best we've got in terms of neologism. So mansplaining is defined by Urban Dictionary as the tendency of some men to mistakenly believe that they automatically know more about any given topic than does a woman and who consequently proceed to explain to her correctly or not things that she already knows. Um, and then there's an example. Woman A. When he started mansplaining to me what it really meant to be a woman in the 21st century, I got up and left. Woman B. Really? What else could you do? So, um, so that definition is interesting um, when combined with the example, uh, because I think that mansplaining, in, in my exposure to the term, is not just about um, men explaining anything to women, but specifically about men explaining um, women's issues to women. Um, and I, I'm really torn about this term. Uh, shout out, by the way, to Nathan Gilmore, who I know uh, hates this word a lot. So, hi Nathan, doing this for you. Um, I'm really torn about this term for a couple reasons. One, um, just as sort of a consumer of language, as a person with multiple English degrees, as a coinage, it's just a really gross word that is not pleasing to the ear. <laughs> like, it's not, um, I understand that it's a portmanteau. Um, and that portmanteau can be interesting, but it always makes me think of um, of Ricky Ricardo. Like I, I feel like uh, every time I hear it, I hear Lucy, you've got some splaining to do. Which, if that's true, um, if if other people have thought that, maybe the word is also kind of a little bit racist. I don't know, um, but I I feel like this word is being used on the internet um, not just to talk about. Um, men in activist circles who are trying to explain women's issues like they're experts on women's issues, um, which I feel like is a valid criticism in some cases. Um, but I feel like there's a danger sometimes, anytime um, a man speaks up on an issue, no matter how informed he is, there's this danger that somebody is going to say, stop mansplaining to me, and completely shut down the conversation, which is not productive because we need male feminists, we need allies, we need as many people that are going to get the word out about um, oppression and inequality and the movement. So um, I do think that there's a way that this kind of neologism and discourse can um, can hurt more than it helps in some ways, both um, within the movement and both um, in sort of outer circles um, of allies and things like that. Marie, can you uh, extend the conversation a little bit more? I think we have a lot of great points going on. And two things that stood out to me uh, from this whole discussion, and they're related to what we've been talking about, is the question of representation, which you, Victoria, have been 
talking about and Leah as well. And um, the question of tone policing and the issues surrounding tone policing, which you've also mentioned as one of the things that was in the graphic uh, being questioned by this article. So something that's going on with Goldberg's article uh, and with, of course, the larger idea of intersectionality like you've been talking about is the question of representation of marginalized voices and the tendency to erase the marginalized from conversations about issues that directly affect them. Uh, as we talked about in episodes 5.1 and 5.2 on feminism on TV and in the movies, representation in itself is important, even the more passive representation, like seeing people like you on TV. You know, representation is even more important when it comes to making decisions about things that impact you and those like you. Uh, yet that sort of representation is so often withheld from marginalized groups. So you think about all-male government committees on policies about reproduction. That's a kind of, I guess, an extreme form of mansplaining, maybe. <laughs> um, or, But within feminism, then, this, uh, of course, representation remains important on the in the feminist scene, and that's something I think that intersectional feminism recognizes. So obviously, we know that the feminist scene should not be dominated only by the voices of the white and the privileged, <laughs> and it's not that. Uh, as Victoria points out, it's not feasible that every group will be represented in every situation, in every article, in every panel. But it's certainly a recognition that it's important to listen to varying voices and to work towards a social atmosphere in which it's possible for marginalized voices to lead and to be heard by others. You know, especially in when we're talking about issues that directly affect, you know, the people involved. They should be talking about these issues as well. Um, many of the examples of negative responses to the Fem Future meeting that Goldberg mentions and many that she seems to dismiss are focused on pointing out this need for representation. And again, I think that's a good thing that the need is widely recognized. And another issue that was frequently raised in the responses that I read was uh, tone policing, which is something that Goldberg mentioned is one of the rules of online feminism that has become too hidebound and toxic. Tone policing happens when a conversation or discussion is derailed by someone who's focusing only on the tone and not the content of the person who's presenting an idea. For a typical example, look at the comments section of Flavia Zodin's glowingly fervent My feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit at tigerbeatdown.com. Rather than recognizing that Zodan's anger is justified and even demanded by the situations of injustice that she describes, some commenters only suggest that her anger is not helpful and that, in fact, she is too angry. Tone policing like this not only derails the conversation, but also implies that the person doing the policing sees the issue under discussion as relatively unimportant, not something that would justify anger. It can also be a strategy for silencing dissenting voices, one that often relies on negative stereotypes like the over-emotional, illogical women, angry black people, and so on. 
the perception of anger or even just of emotion can then be used to dismiss whatever argument is being made. For all these reasons, tone policing came to be viewed very negatively online. And I think that these are valid and important reasons. <coughs> ones that would make me very cautious in condemning the tone of any writer or speaker. And that was one thing that made me slightly uncomfortable when I read Sarah Bessie's Jesus Feminist, which was discussed in episode 7.2. Bessie often emphasizes her own gentle tone as she riffs on the piano of grace, which is fine, of course, and I liked you know her tone and style. But she's make she's the way that she talks about her own tone <laughs> is in contrast with other feminists sort of implying that she's not like those angry feminists and so she deserves to be listened to more than they do and so that sort of unsettled me there i i think we probably uh policed her tone on that episode pretty heavily um, <laughs> but, but um but mostly in the context that you did that like we sort of couldn't figure out why she was using that tone, like if it was a counter move or if it was some kind of like, I, I think we mentioned Eclusia Feminine a couple of times, um, if if it was this like move to embrace femininity on purpose. Yeah. So sorry, Sarah Bessie, if we tone police you. <laughs> um, we didn't really mean to, I don't think. Um, and also, uh, I, I hope that, that my comments about... Um, going away from some blogs uh, because I, I just perceived them as as consistently angry. Um, I, I don't mean to tone police by doing that. Maybe I need to go back and sort of revisit why I'm, I'm feeling that way. Uh, this conversation is, is making me kind of uh, second-guess things I said half an hour ago, which is great. That's what these conversations are supposed to do. Um, but I, I do feel like there's a difference in, in not reading um, because I... I'm sort of, I, I feel awash in tone and, and commenting and saying you shouldn't be so angry. So I don't know, maybe that's a cop out. No, I think that there's a difference, definitely. Um, and I also think that um, these valid reasons for being careful about tone policing doesn't mean that there's never anything at all to be said about anger online or some of the products of anger as they come out online. And that's something, again, that, that Cross discussed in her response to Goldberg and, and the earlier post, Words, Words, Words is the title, which is which Goldberg's Berg cites. Um, Yay, gotta love so, a Hamlet reference. <laughs> yeah. So, again, and thinking about tone policing, for me, I think we need to distinguish between anger, which is valid, though maybe you don't always want to read it when there will be other people reading it. <laughs> you don't don't always want to read something that's uh, expressionless either. I mean, um, that there's a lot, there's personal taste that goes into what you read as well. But so, to distinguish between anger and um, harmful attacks, which uh, can hurt people in ways that just ex an expression of anger by itself would not. Um, and also, again, to distinguish between pointing out how you are being harmed by someone and between attacking someone as well. Uh, so many of the, the, the arguments that I read across the board um, in this discussion, including Cross, have called for a greater recognition of the humanity of the people that we interact with online as something to think about in this conversation. So 
you might be less likely to urge a person to kill themselves, for example, which I would say is a harmful attack, if you believe in the full humanity of the person who'd be on the receiving end of this online communication. And um, that, I think, is uh, makes sense to me, to remember the people we're talking with are human. And certainly that would go into both listening to marginalized voices and recognizing justified anger, uh, as well as my own efforts to treat those I interact with in uh, a way that acknowledges their humanity. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely something that we should all be doing and definitely something that I think is far too easy to uh, to lose track of, especially in our uh, sometimes anonymous online interactions. Uh, and that's a really excellent segue, thanks, Marie, uh, into our final point on the reading. Um, I'm just going to go around the virtual table here and ask everyone um, to think about how our Christianities teach us to handle uh, some of the situations we've talked about tonight. Um, anonymity, representation, language, inclusion, any of these things. Um, you can focus on any of the issues we've mentioned so far, or you can talk about something new. Uh, I'm not even going to throw it to anyone. Uh, speak up. Say what you will. Well, I guess I can go first. Uh, in terms of inclusion and inclusivity, for me, this isn't really a separate issue when it comes to faith and the church or to feminism and social justice. I see the need for inclusivity um, or more largely for recognition of equality and all these fears for the same reason that I believe that we're all equal before God and we're all equally loved and created by God. And so we should acknowledge that to each other. <laughs> and that's, of course, not to say that everyone who works towards inclusivity or, and feminism would have the same reasoning, of course. Uh, also with this particular situation, and I couldn't help when I was reading, but mentally compare the problems with gatekeeping um, involved in this, the feminist scene um, with the problems with evangelical gatekeeping. So both the internet gentrification described by Park and the tendency to declare that a person isn't really a feminist if they do or say X thing seem similar to me to the tendency to dismiss someone that you disagree with on any religious issue as not really a Christian when they claim Christian as part of their identity. Um, and I see this tendency in the online evangelical community, but you also hear it from the pulpit or in theological publications. And for, <laughs> for me, that goes against, um, the uh, the need for inclusivity and uh, respect for what a person is saying about themselves. If they're saying that they are a feminist, if they're saying that they are a Christian, we should acknowledge and respect that. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, um, the existence of this show at all is a testament to that, right? I mean, I, when we were sort of talking, when we were kicking this around and, and talking about making a podcast, um, all of us talked about, 
how we'd heard that kind of gatekeeping impulse. Um, you know, if, if you were a real feminist, you wouldn't be a Christian, or if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't be a feminist. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think that that, um, that that is um, a, a key issue here. I kept, um, when I was thinking about this, I, I don't have a lot of super articulate things to say um, on this issue. I'm still thinking it through, so bear with me, please. Um, but when I was thinking it out, I kept coming back to Matthew 6, 5. Uh, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they had their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Um, I feel like online activism can sometimes take on this um, this praying on a street corner kind of quality that um, that what we do online is about um, page clicks and comment threads and and um, looking like an online activist sometimes um, you know you have to sort of like all the right blogs and follow all the right speakers and all of this um, and it can be more about presenting a face as an activist than actually doing stuff um, on that vein right before we recorded somebody linked me to um, a commencement speech by Shonda Rhimes who um, you know, worked on scandal Grey's Anatomy those kind of things and she said uh, um, she's talking about activism in the commencement speech at Dartmouth. Um, here's a quote. Oh, and while we're discussing this, let me say something. A hashtag is not helping. Hashtag yes all women. Hashtag take back the night. Hashtag not all men. Hashtag bring back our girls. Hashtag stop pretending hashtags are the same as doing something. And then she says, hashtags are very pretty on Twitter. I love them. I will hashtag myself into next week. But a hashtag is not a movement. A hashtag does not make you Dr. King. A hashtag does not change anything. It's a hashtag. It's you sitting on your butt, typing on your computer, and then going back to binge-watching your favorite show. So uh, I thought that was really awesome and really timely. And I, I don't want to say that um, online activism is not activism, and I don't think that's what Rhymes is saying either. Um, but I, I think she is saying, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Put your actions where your mouth is. Um, don't just be words on the screen. Be something else other than that. I would really agree with that, too. Um, that's something that I've been struggling with, uh, getting more involved in online feminism, as I have been lately. And... Uh, sorting through who you think are the leaders of this online feminism, which is something dangerous to say, and uh, who are just uh, mimicking um, what actually needs to be said and done is very terrifying. And I think that that's something that we just need to be aware of as Christians whether it is feminism or a different activism that we are supporting, uh, just to be discerning and to know when to step up and to call things out, as we were discussing earlier, uh, we should know the 
difference between constructive criticism and tearing people down. And uh, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out exactly how all this fits within my faith as well, but just being aware of what is going on and knowing when is a good time to actually join uh, join the fight, join the cause, uh, and when is a good time to just sit back and let what happens happen. Yeah, great stuff all around, uh, but unfortunately we are running short on time, so let's uh, go into our final segment, the passing on segment, uh, where we recommend stuff that we think you, our listeners, should watch, read, listen to, expose yourself to, etc. Um, Leah, can you go first, and then Marie, and then I'll wrap us up. Sure. Um, I would definitely read the hashtag FemFuture report. It does have some really good information about what online feminism is um, and how that can develop in the future to really help feminism as a cause. Uh, there are also the articles that I mentioned a little bit earlier regarding racism within feminism. Um and we there. will link to those in the show notes. Mm -hmm. uh, other than that, uh, I guess I would just encourage listeners to look around on Twitter and um, and the different blog spheres and to find the loads of different articles that are available on the subject. Well, I'd like to recommend Catherine Cross's two blog posts, which I mentioned earlier. They're very nuanced and uh, very thought-provoking in terms of thinking about the uh, response to Goldberg and that whole situation. And they can be found on quinnae.com. That's Quinn with two N's. And she also had more to say about tone policing, which I didn't have time to get into, but uh, you should go read it. And I also want to recommend two other things. Um, one is Diana Anderson's post on the issue of the supposed toxicity of internet feminism, a post titled Binary Thinking, Perfectionism, and the Magic of White Feminism, which is at dianaeanderson.net. And in terms of inclusivity and the church, I also want, <coughs> want to recommend a brief lyrical meditation on the need for inclusion or embrace in the church, the post titled Talk Inclusive to Me, Baby, by Nate Craddock on his blog at nrcraddock.wordpress.com. And that's Craddock with two Ds. And uh, while you're at it, go ahead and read his post, Queer Voices, which is on the importance of listening to queer voices in the church. Great, thanks. Lots of uh, lots of intersectional blog posts like that. 
Um, I am also, uh, in addition to recommending the Shonda Rhimes commencement address, uh, which I don't know about you guys, but this time of year I really love reading celebrity commencement addresses. It is something that makes me feel good about the state of the world. Uh, so if you are like me, check that out. Um, in addition to that, I'm also going to recommend a blog that I think does intersectionality really, really well. Um, that is the FWD blog. Um, uh, FWD stands for Forward and also stands for Feminists with Disabilities. Uh, they're at disabledfeminist.com. Unfortunately, the blog itself is no longer active, but they've kept their archive open. Um, it's really excellent. And they have a final post that links to a lot of other people doing similarly intersectional work um, that recognizes the intersection of gender and embodiment and ability. Uh, so that's my recommendation. Any uh, other final words, ladies? No, that's it for me. Yep, I think we covered it. All right. Well, I will uh, wrap it up then. Thanks for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We want to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line, please do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. We are really serious about this. Uh, this is the part where I get a little desperate, if you'll forgive me. Or if not, I don't care. <laughs> I'm getting desperate anyway. Uh, we've been doing this show for a year, and nobody's written us a single email, even though you post on our Facebook page. So please talk to us more. We think you guys are great. For show notes for this episode and other episodes, you can check out christianhumanist.org. For Marie and Leah, I'm Victoria. We'll be back next month with an episode on the Netflix original series Orange is the New Black. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.